This is The Saucer Life, a podcast in which we examine concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking. And in this episode, we are going to be trying something new. Uh, This is the first installment of, hopefully, maybe, if it works out well, a strand of episodes called Saucer Law looking at interesting or significant legal proceedings in the world of UFOs and flying saucers. And today, for the first inaugural, first comma inaugural, not first inaugural, that would be redundant, but for the first and inaugural episode of Saucer Law, uh, we're going to be looking at the lawsuit Ground Saucer Watch versus CIA and the background of this case. It's a significant case. The entire proceedings and what led up to the eventual federal lawsuit and and the and the, the eventual decision in the lawsuit, these things had an impact on how ufology sort of positioned itself and avenues of investigation that really hadn't been open to it before and as we're going to see wouldn't be entirely as open ever again. So, that's what we're looking at today. Ground Saucer Watch versus CIA. So, the first place to start is with the Freedom of Information Act. And these days, here in 2023, we kind of take FOIA for granted. Um, It's just sort of a thing that we know about and that people do, and we get responses or we don't get responses. But some of us, especially those of us who are younger than the Freedom of Information Act, we we don't see it as anything new or revolutionary. It's, It's something that was just sort of there. But it's a law. It isn't just sort of there. It was proposed and amended and enacted and signed into law and changed and things have happened to it. So it has its roots in the Administrative Procedure Act, which was um, passed in 1946. And the Administrative Procedure Act basically um, – well, Section 3 of the Administrative Procedure Act was basically the guidelines for – dissemination of government records and publication of government records. And and basically, it gave executive branch departments and agencies kind of carte blanche to just sort of do what they want. They can give people information when requested. They can say, no, we we have no reason to give you that information. It's it's up to us. We have have a a lot of leeway about what we can do with this. So then there, there was sort of pushback against this. And in, um, in 1966, during the Lyndon Johnson administration, the section, the, the 
section of the Administrative Procedures Act, Section 3, that covered government record keeping and publication of those records um, was sort of broken off into its own law and passed and it would be the the Freedom of Information Act, which was basically an amendment of the Administrative Procedure Act. I know you all find this as interesting as I do because I'm, I'm not kidding. I, I do find this sort of thing fascinating. But from the very beginning, from the very beginning, there was some skepticism and some concern within the executive branch, particularly in 1966, President Johnson, that even things that were unclassified, there were some things that are unclassified that just should not be out there. And so Johnson was not entirely thrilled with every aspect of the Freedom of Information Act, but it was uh, – he signed it into law regardless. So when this law – was set out, there were um, there were some guidelines and uh, they, they things that were specifically secret, um, things that are in the secret in the interest of of foreign policy, diplomacy, national defense. Um, basically, those things need to be classified, and, and those aren't fair game for FOIA. Uh, things that are internal personnel rules and practices, um, other things. Basically, law enforcement stuff, um, especially documents or records that could interfere with the prosecution of a case, um, I, you don't want defense attorneys FOIAing things that federal prosecutors don't want FOIAed, for example. Um, some financial information, some geological and geophysical information. Um, one thing that I found very interesting is that one of the ex exemptions that was carved out um, I initially was uh, maps uh, that that um, had to do with wells and well water well locations. Which, I mean, water is is kind of strategic infrastructure, isn't it? Uh, you don't want all of that out there. I mean, I don't want anybody knowing that the the wellhead for my well is sort of in the driveway under this sort of steel. Pl oh shoot! I told you where my well is. Please don't do anything horrible with that information. Um, there were amendments fairly quickly. Uh, 1970, the Postal Reorganization Act exempted the U.S. Postal Service basically from having to divulge anything that would be um, trade secrets, uh, business practices that could be used by competitors. Um, but overall, this was a much more broad, robust way for the public to access government information than anything that had been part of the federal law before. But there were still lots of things that were sort of sort of not uh, not covered. And it you know you, you could request information through FOIA, but, there weren't a lot of things that that required enforcement or following through by the organizations. Again, there was still some some leeway and some um, some judgment that uh, that that agencies could uh, could could stick to. That would change, however, by the mid 1970s, and there are a number of factors 
that led to these changes. But I think the biggest one is Watergate. And not only Watergate, but Vietnam. And not only Vietnam, but declassified government documents that surfaced about CIA malfeasance and things like that. There were lots of indications by the mid-1970s that the executive branch was um, was was kind – well, let me – let me dial that back. There were elements of agencies within the executive branch that were kind of loose cannons, sometimes literally. So there was an attempt to introduce laws that would tighten things up and provide more transparency to the federal government. So it's 1974. Watergate is a recent memory and Congress passes a bill. Um, the Privacy Act Amendments of 1974. And President Gerald Ford was in favor of it, but um, people around him on the White House staff were not happy at all. You might recognize their names. It was White House Chief of Staff Donald Rumsfeld and his deputy Dick Cheney. They were concerned about leaks. Another person who would go on to uh, to a, an illustrious career who had a real problem with this was Office of Legal Counsel Assistant Attorney General Antonin Scalia, future Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. He says the he said the bill was unconstitutional, and according to documents that were declassified um, about twenty years ago, uh, Scalia got in touch with the CIA and asked them to lobby some White House staffers to sort of nudge Ford in the direction of vetoing the bill, which he did in October of 1974. However, it is 1974. It is the end of 1974. After November of 1974, it is a lame duck Congress. These folks don't have to run for re-election. That's already been decided. So in December of 1974, Congress overwhelmingly overrides Gerald Ford's veto of the Privacy Act amendments, and they become law. So basically, the Privacy Act amendments give somebody the right to see government records about themselves, the right to amend that record if it's inaccurate or incomplete, and the right to sue the government for violations under the act. Um, this basically – the privacy stuff about your own records was added, but it um, it strengthened FOIA in a number of different ways, adding sort of sort of time time requirements and um, and things like that. Now, there's a lot that would go through the courts, but this was a a strong move toward making FOIA have a little bit more teeth. So. In 10 minutes or so, that's sort of a, a very short history of the Freedom of Information Act up to the mid-70s. It was not intended to be exhaustive. Um, it was not intended to be anything you couldn't find out yourself on Google. But um, what, what, would I, what would I do? Tell you, you know, Google FOIA and read up on it, then come back and listen to the rest of the episode. No, I thought I would spend 10 minutes talking about FOIA, um, which is – the most fun I've had on this show in a long time. Uh, I'm kidding. Okay. So where do flying saucers come into this? It was 1975. 
And out in Phoenix, Arizona, there was a UFO organization called Ground Saucer Watch. It's not around anymore. And it was directed by a guy named Bill Spaulding or William Spaulding. In 1975, Spaulding wrote a letter to the CIA and accused, I guess is the best word, accused the CIA of having a huge amount of UFO information that they weren't releasing to the public. Now, in a 1994 issue of Omni Magazine, um, Todd Zeckel, uh, who would la- who was part of Ground Saucer Watch and would later be part of Citizens, Citizens Against UFO Secrecy, Zeckel says that, quote, it wasn't an official FOIA request as such, but more like an accusatory letter. And surprisingly, the CIA responded, end quote. So basically, there was a case, a case of a guy, guy named Ralph Mayer, a Marine photographer who said he had filmed a UFO near Miami back in 1952. He was going to – he ended up being a news cameraman and, and this was a case that, that Spaulding believed the CIA had information on. So they asked the CIA for all of these files. And the CIA feel like they have to respond, even if this wasn't formatted in a standard FOIA request sort of format. Thanks to the CIA journal Studies in Intelligence back in 1997 doing an article on the CIA and UFOs, we get the CIA's side of the story of this request as well. On 14th July, 1975, Spaulding wrote the agency questioning the authenticity of the reports he had received and alleging a CIA cover-up of its UFO activities. Gene Wilson, CIA's Information and Privacy Coordinator, replied in an attempt to satisfy Spaulding, quote, At no time prior to the formation of the Robertson panel and subsequent to the issuance of the panel's report has CIA engaged in the study of the UFO phenomenon. The Robertson panel, according to Wilson, was, quote, the summation of agency interest and involvement in UFOs. Wilson also inferred that there were no additional documents in CIA's possession related to UFOs. Wilson was ill-informed. Spaulding and his ground saucer watch colleagues did not think that the CIA was being entirely forthcoming. And so... In the December 1977 issue of the Ground Saucer Watch Bulletin, we get some information about what their next steps are going to be. Over a period of more than two years, we have been in correspondence with the CIA requesting specific articles of UFO evidence, as well as documents confirming inferred governmental UFO research. With each letter, we were met with aversion, fraud, delay, and denial, even when objective facts were made available to facilitate the completion of our requests, all efforts remained fruitless. Consultation with our lawyers followed, and a plan of action was formulated. Many of you have heard rumors about something big in the works. This is it. It is with great hope that GSW announces that on September 12, 1977, the organization filed suit in federal court against the Central Intelligence Agency and CIA Director Stansfield-Turner. 
The complaint alleges violation of the Freedom of Information Act and requests the court to force the release of desired documentation and evidence. This is big. This is important. And this is something that only could have happened after those changes to privacy laws and freedom of information laws in 1974. One of the big things that comes out of those 1974 reforms or revisions or amendments or whatever you want to call them is that people could present a case in federal court over these issues, that it could get kicked into the judicial realm. It's not just administrative law administered by the executive branch. It is a judicial thing as well, which does um, does raise some constitutional questions about separation of powers. I, I think I, I disagree with future Justice Scalia about whether or not this was unconstitutional or not, but I understand the concerns that could be raised about branches having precedence over one another. But nevertheless, Ground Saucer Watch was going to try it. Now, they are kind of realistic that they might not get exactly the outcome they hope for. There is, of course, the possibility that the court will decide in favor of the CIA. Yet this, too, can be turned to our advantage. Under the FOIA, the CIA can only withhold evidence of national security nature. To win the case, it therefore must prove to the court that UFOs are of national security nature, which is a complete reversal of long-standing public policy. Thus, by losing the suit, we may be gaining tacit admission of the existence of UFOs. Probably the major hurdle this test case must vault is whether or not federal courts will accept jurisdiction over the CIA, which is an arm of the executive branch of our government. If it does, then it is likely by the time the case is concluded, we will know significantly more about UFOs. Further, a win would set important precedents, allowing for the filing of many more similar suits and the release of other extremely valuable information. In a way, this seems like classic UFO sort of magical legal thinking that, well, if we lose, we win because they'll have to admit this, that, or the other, and that's a total game changer. But I I get it, and it, it seems sort of, I don't know, passe now for them to you know sort of be thinking in these terms, but this was 1977. Uh, they hadn't. We, we hadn't had at this point the sort of endless promising of disclosure by various means that we've had in the last 20, 25 years. And it would I would be remiss if I did not share this. Um, this is just sort of the most sweetly optimistic, almost – old school pie in the sky sentiment with which they conclude this article. We could be on the verge of gaining insight into UFOs that few individuals ever had, a very sobering thought. Yet that is exactly what the various UFO organizations have been striving for so long. We have considered the potential reactions resultant from public release of the confirmed news of extraterrestrial presence, an unlikely but possible result of the release of this data. 
We believe the United States has matured sufficiently to absorb information of this kind with no ill effects. We further believe that if the United States were to react well, the entire world would be inspired to accept the news. It is with this confidence in human beings that we seek the truth. This is going to change the world, and it's okay because the world is ready. Or at least, America's ready. And if the United States of America is ready, everybody else around the world is going to realize that, I don't know, it's okay to be ready as well. I love that. I love that optimism. I, I, I love that, that sort of, you know, give it to us straight, chief. What's the truth? Sort of attitude. So what was the substance of these demands in this lawsuit from Ground Saucer Watch against the Central Intelligence Agency? Well, we'll get into that after the break. If you like the saucer life and you want more or you want it quicker, you can support us in exchange for bonus content. Patrons over on the Patreon get the episodes before everybody else. And there are bonus content things every month, um, updates and things like that. The June bonus episode, which will be hitting at the very end of June, uh, is going to be – I'm going to talk about this this uh, Grush guy, this whistleblower, and his very interesting and totally unique and never before you know revealed story. So if you're interested, you can check that out at patreon.com slash chizomedia or just click the link in the show notes or go to chizomedia.com or Google Saucer Life Patreon or just ask me where it is. You can check out past episodes of the show at saucerlife.com or on your favorite podcast app. As always, um, we are still on Twitter and Instagram at Saucer Life. You can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com or contact us by post at Chizo Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 48480. Reaction to the Missouri Field Trip episodes was, was pretty good. Uh, I, I enjoy doing stuff like that. It was a little fun. It was a little more light. Um, I'm not going to say it was easier to, uh, to, to put together than an episode like this where I'm reading court documents and things like that. It's just a, a, a different sort of, of difficult. So I hope nobody thought it was a lazy way to, uh, to provide content. But um, hopefully now that we're about halfway through, the, uh, the saucer law is, uh, is, is interesting you. There's going to be more of this in the future. I was going to do a general episode about these organizations that have been doing these lawsuits for years, but I thought sort of looking at individual cases might be more interesting. Um, so that's what we're doing right now. Next time, I have no idea what the next episode is going to be. I'm not even going to pretend I have a clue about what you will be hearing in two weeks or so. But um, that's part of the adventure, right? Because every time I plan out episodes in advance, I end up changing it. So What's next? Who knows? But for right now, let's go check out how many hundreds of questions Ground Saucer Watch's lawyers asked the CIA. 
Okay. So the federal lawsuit from Ground Saucer Watch against the Central Intelligence Agency. Um, there's a couple of documents that are fortunately preserved by the Project 1947 website. I think Jan Aldrich is the fella who, who uh, runs that. And we've got a couple of documents. We've got a, 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 a filing demanding the production of documents and other things. That's what it's called. And then we have a document that is a, a sort of filing of interrogatories or questions that Ground Saucer Watch wants the Central Intelligence Agency to answer. So these things are absolutely long, like 50-some pages. And the documents, um, the number of documents, I will tell you that as I scroll down here, they request 274 specific documents. And I'll just give you some examples. All documents relating to Captain Thomas Mantell and the incident of January 7th, 1948. All documents pertaining to the Civilian Saucer Committee in California. All documents referring to any civilian UFO group. All documents relating to Kenneth Arnold and or his sighting of 27 June, 1952. All documents relating to the formation, planning, and creation of the panel commonly known as the Robertson Panel. All documents pertaining to UFOs in the Operations Department of the CIA. A copy of the original Robinson Panel Report. All documents concerning the operation and dissolution of the Robertson Panel. All documents used by the Robertson Panel. All documents relating to any of the following civilian UFO organizations. NICAP, GSW, MUFON, APRO, KUFOS, Civilian Flying Saucer Investigators. All documents pertaining to a UFO sighting in Iran, 19 September 1976. All documents stored in the Foreign Documents Radio Broadcast Division with the heading Military Unidentified Flying Objects. All documents pertaining to UFOs stored in the Foreign Missile and Space Analysis Center, Directorate of Science and Technology, or any of the below-mentioned components, Office of Weapons Intelligence, Office of Electronic Intelligence, Office of Research and Development, Imagery Analysis Service. Any and all documents concerning the following individuals, George Adamski, Betty Hill, Barney Hill, J. Allen Hynek, William H. Spaulding, Richard Hall, Edward Condon, Edward Ruppelt, Donald Kehoe, Larry Bryant, Jim Lorenzen, Coral Lorenzen, Walter Andrus, Jack Acuff, Calvin Parker, Charles Hickson, Ted Phillips, Ted Blecker, Dick Rule, Philip Klass, Jacques Vallée, Todd Zeckel, Elaine Thomas, Mona Stafford, Reinhold O. Schmidt, Woodrow Derenberger, Travis Walton, Brad Sparks, Bruce McAbee, Charles Huffer, Brad Steiger, Howard Menger, Frank Edwards, James Mosley, Gray Barker, Albert Bender, Aimé Michel, Otto Binder, Charles Bowen, Gordon Creighton, Keith Basterfield, Jean Duplantier, Bruce Cathy, David Saunders, Lucius Farish, Len Stringfield, Ray Fowler, Ray Stanford, James McDonald, David Webb, Walter Webb, Patrick Weege, Robert Lowe. In addition to that, and that was just a small sampling, they want information, all 
CIA information relating to a bunch of different sightings. And there's some of these that that jump out as absolutely, you know, vital. Uh, October uh, October 11th, 1970. It just has a dash. Uh, Pascagoula, Mississippi. Um, you've got um, oh, what are some other good ones? McMinnville, um, the Lake Superior, 1953 uh, disappearance of the F-89. Fighter out of Kinross Air Force Base in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. You've got um, the Hillsdale sightings, the swamp gas sightings. You know, you've got um, the Northeast Blackout of 1965, the Betty and Barney Hill sighting, Lonnie Zamoro's sighting in Socorro, New Mexico. Basically, all the sightings that are the big ones and ones you've probably never heard of, but the one that jumped out at me. And this relates to one of the names that was in the list. They want all the documents about the sighting in Kearney, Nebraska, November 5th, 1957. That is the Reinhold Schmidt sighting. Why? Why? You've got a limited amount of space. You know they're not going to get everything. Why throw Reinhold Schmidt in there? Who believes Reinhold Schmidt was – Important. Well, actually, the CIA might have had interesting stuff about Reinhold Schmidt. But so that that's the list of of documents they want. And I did some, you know, control F finding things trying to just double check. But um, I find it really sort of a very 1977 thing here. There's nothing in here about Roswell. There, there's there's nothing about Roswell. There is nothing about Aztec. There is nothing about um, Frank Scully. They don't even care about Frank Scully and uh, his crashes and everything. Saucer crashes are are not part of the deal here, which is in 1977, we are really at the last sort of gasp of the sort of crash retrievals not being a super mainstream thing. So that's that's kind of refreshing, at least for me. Now, the other key document here, the interrogatories or questions, a lot of them are very arcane and refer to documents that aren't currently attached to the to the thing. But there's there's some chunks of questions that they're they're very lawyerly. It's it's like a cross examination or questions in a deposition. There's some really interesting stuff here. In 1952, did the CIA believe that a fair proportion of our population was mentally conditioned to the acceptance of the incredible? If the answer to the above question is yes, explain in details reasons for the above belief. Does the CIA still believe this in 1978? If the answer is yes, explain in detail the present reasons for this belief. If the answer is no, explain in detail the reasons for the change in belief since 1952. In 1952, did the CIA believe that the UFO phenomena had national security implications? If the answer to the above question is yes, explain fully these implications. Describe fully all national security implications concerning UFOs from 1952 to 1978. In 1952, did the CIA believe that civilian UFO groups had the power to touch off mass hysteria and panic? If the answer is yes, explain in detail the reasons for this belief. In 1978, does the CIA believe that civilian UFO groups have the power to touch off mass hysteria? If the answer to the above question is yes, explain the reasons for the above belief. If the answer is no, explain in detail the reasons for the change in belief. 
Has the CIA ever been in contact with any civilian UFO groups or any of its members? If the answer is yes, explain in detail any such contact identifying the groups and persons involved. Describe the difference between an official unidentified sighting as compared to an unofficial identified sighting. The question about CIA knowledge or connection with people in civilian UFO groups is interesting um, because of some of the people involved with NICAP, especially as it was going into decline in the early 1970s and indeed some of the people who were there at the very beginning in the 1950s. If um, if you want to know more about that, uh, Jack Brewer's newest book, Wayward Sons, is an incredibly detailed study of the connections between the intelligence community and some of the early people in positions of authority in NICAP. So there are a number of questions. There are a total of 635 questions, often referring to specific documents. Um, and, and so there are questions like, um, like, what is the purpose of the number 13 in the margin of this document? What is the purpose of the number 10 on this document? What does the handwritten note whatever, refer to in this document. It is, it is exhaustive. It is exhaustive. And there's a lot here. This is, this is not just an FOIA request. The, the FOIA stuff that sort of documents list, that kind of makes sense. You know, this, you know, you need that specific listing of things to search for, but this, this list of, uh, of interrogatories, or questions is just is just mind blowing. So, what was the result of this? How did all of this turn out? Well, as always, there are different perspectives on things, and what we have are Todd Zeckel's recollections from this 1994 Omni article, which was part of a series on the UFO cover up, and we also have the 1997 article from the CIA's Studies and Intelligence Journal that we heard from before. And these are very similar accounts, but there are some key differences. And there are also some differences from the um, actual record in some cases. So what does Omni Magazine and Todd Zeckel have to say about all this? The case wound up in federal district court as GSW versus the CIA under the jurisdiction of Judge John Pratt. After protracted legal maneuverings, lawyers for both sides finally met with representatives of the Attorney General's office in Washington in July of 1978. At that meeting, according to Zeckel, I had threatened to have the CIA prosecuted for making false replies under the FOIA. Ultimately, the agency agreed to search all of its files for UFO records and to stipulate which ones it would release and which it wouldn't. As the FOIA was structured at the time, the CIA was also obligated to account for any deletions on an item-by-item -item basis. As Zeckel recalls, the CIA missed its original 90-day deadline by 88 days. Quote, then they dumped a stack of documents on our desks about two to three feet thick, heavily blacked out, with none of the deletions accounted for, Zeckel states. We now had 30 days to try and identify and contest the deletions, which was humanly impossible. Instead, 
Gersten, the lawyer, filed a motion claiming the CIA stood in contempt of court and clearly had not acted in good faith. The motion was filed after GSW's own 30-day response deadline had expired, however, and Judge Pratt summarily dismissed the suit. We were one day late, Zeckel recalls, and that effectively ended the suit. So basically, the CIA took their sweet time, was three months late, and then gave them a bunch of stuff that was impossible to dig through in time. They filed a motion claiming this had been, you know, this was not fully responsive to the request and was in violation of the laws, but that was one day late and the judge had to dismiss it, had no choice. The implication here is that Judge Pratt was not able to rule on the merits of these things, but rather that it was just a technicality because of the deadline. So the CIA's um, interpretation of this in Gerald Hines's article in Studies and Intelligence is not too different. It's a little more detailed and it's a little more sympathetic to the CIA as you might expect. Deluged by similar FOIA requests for agency information on UFOs, CIA officials agreed, after much legal maneuvering, to conduct a reasonable search of CIA files for UFO materials. Despite an agency-wide unsympathetic attitude toward the suit, agency officials led by Lori Zebel from the Office of General Counsel conducted a thorough search for records pertaining to UFOs. Persistent, demanding, and even threatening at times, Zebel and his group scoured the agency. They even turned up an old UFO file under his secretary's desk. The search finally produced 355 documents totaling approximately 900 pages. On 14 December 1978, the agency released all but 57 documents of about 100 pages to GSW. It withheld these 57 documents on national security grounds and to protect sources and methods. So the CIA historian's position is that despite the fact that everybody was kind of pissed off about having to do anything about this, the the guy, uh, Lonnie, I said Lori, Lonnie or Lori Zebel, spelled both ways, I think, um, from the general counsel's office was like, nope, we're going to take this seriously. We're going to do it. We are literally going to look under desks and we are going to find things and we are going to turn over what we find. So... The news sort of breaks and the New York Times picks it up and it's like the CIA was into UFOs, which was was not really the case. It was more incidentally the CIA collected information about lots of stuff and sometimes UFOs were part of that. But because of the sense on the part of Ground Saucer Watch that the CIA had not done what they were supposed to do, their lawyer, Peter Gersten, filed a – um, a, a complaint about the thoroughness of the search in 1979, that the defendant or the CIA was entering into all of this in bad faith, that there was never a reasonable search and never an intent to conduct a reasonable search, that they are still hiding UFO documents, and that they operate under secrecy and deceit and thus 
you know, they're spies, right? You can't trust them. So this is the the sort of appeal that in the Omni article was said, we were one day late and the judge had to, you know, dismiss it. But was that actually the reason for the dismissal? Because interestingly, this dismissal, which that Omni article implied was due to a technicality, Ground Saucer Watch appealed that to the appeals court. And that appeals court issued a ruling on that dismissal in 1981. And just like just like future Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia had opinions about the constitutionality of the expansion of FOIA back in 1974, one of the judges on the Circuit Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia um, was future Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So we've got a couple of of prominent historical personages um, sort of who are part of this. This decision um, was to affirm the dismissal. So basically, it's done. Ground Saucer Watch, this is the end of the case. It does not as far as I could see, mention the missed deadline that Zeckel and the Omni Magazine article implied was the reason why this was um, this went nowhere. Rather, this is a a lengthy and complicated ruling, full of citations of precedent for the fact that. Ground Saucer Watch has the burden of proof on them if they are claiming the CIA acted in bad faith, did not do a thorough search. Um, Based on the affidavits of CIA employees about the search, based on the instructions issued to CIA employees outlining the search, the court concluded. And again, this is a court decision. I'm not saying this was the right decision or the wrong decision because I haven't seen all the evidence and I'm not a judge and I'm not even a lawyer. But what we're talking about is what the court decided and why it decided that. Based on the evidence the court saw, Ground Saucer Watch did not meet its burden of proof that there was um, there was, you know, a, a bad faith effort. In fact, they say, quote, there is finally no evidence whatever to support a pe- appellant's bald allegation that the CIA did not, in fact, conduct a de novo search of its files. Such unadorned speculation will not compel further discovery or resist a motion for summary judgment. Uh, de novo means the new search, a, a, a sort of not just like, well, we searched, we searched 10 years ago. There's the results of that search. No. A new search, and and this is this is kind of a a snippy kind of kind of conclusion here, where they're affirming this this uh, this decision, the bald allegation, um, no evidence whatsoever, unadorned speculation. Um, I just judicial language is so. Gosh, you read between the lines, and it's like, ooh, wow, they're they're not happy. They had to spend time on this, but it's um it's an interesting case, and I think it's a good one for our first saucer law installment or the the, the first sort of strand of um of this because this is a biggie. That this is this is a biggie, and despite 
the Ground Saucer Watch not getting everything they thought they should get, 900 pages of stuff that wasn't out there before was now out there. And there was this little window where they were able to do this because when we talked about earlier amendments to the Freedom of Information Act, this decision came down in the late 70s, early 80s. All this went down. Um, in 1982, President Ronald Reagan issued Executive Order 12356, which broadened the exemption about national security information and just allowed federal agencies to just say no with much more latitude. So between 74 and 82, there was kind of this this window open. And that window wouldn't open again until 1995 when President Bill Clinton issued executive directives and amendments that allowed things that had been national security classified to be released under under FOIA. So there was a little window where Ground Saucer Watch was able to get some things done. And it wasn't just against the CIA. There were people who would go from Ground Saucer Watch to establishing cause, Citizens Against UFO Secrecy, who we heard about in our last Zine Scene episode. And cause would file and fight a lawsuit against another arm of the national security intelligence complex, the National Security Agency. But that is a story for another time. Thanks for listening. And I've decided what the next episode is going to be. I haven't done an Ask Me Anything on the regular show in a long time, I don't think. Um, I've done a few of them over on Patreon. So if you're over on the Patreon, you're um, at the $5 level and above. Those bonus episodes are there for you. But for uh, for everybody, for the general public, uh, I think for the next episode, I think it would be fun to answer questions you have about anything. Uh, flying saucers, history, television, movies, music, whatever. Um, I'm in the mood to answer questions. So send those in via the usual social media or email channels, and we will address those next time as well as any comments or questions you have about the episode we just did. So let's do that. I think I think that will be fun. I am out of town for about a week. So um, yeah, a, a sort of Q&A episode might be the best option. Uh, so let's do that. Our associate producer is Simpson J. Hanover III, currently gallivanting on some other continent and shirking his duties. The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media, our heart is with the district court. Till next time, keep watching the skies because the skies are watching you.